Back to the book of Isaiah, we return this morning to the 40th chapter. There we'll be picking up at verse 9 and reading through verse 28. To Isaiah chapter 40, I ask you to turn your attention with me. There are, there are some texts in the Bible, more than others, uh, that serve to remind a minister of his uh, smallness and inability uh, to convey the very matter that his vocation demands him to deliver from Lord's Day to Lord's Day. This morning's is just that sort of a text. Even Isaiah must have felt inadequate to these things, even with the Holy Spirit inspiring his very words. We say things like we did in the confession a few minutes ago so easily, they they flip off of our tongues like God the infinite, God the eternal, God the unchangeable God. What do we know about any of that? I mean, really. J.I. Packer, whose book is universally seen by Christians as a classic compendium on knowing God, nevertheless begins by admitting that, quote, as clowns yearn to play Hamlet, so I have wanted to write a treatise on God. He is so great, so majestic so far beyond our most sophisticated thoughts that they, they sound, must sound like a child plunking out chopsticks with two fingers on the keyboard. So how can any pastor hope for one moment faithfully to convey the content of a passage such as the one to which we've come this morning? Augustine prayed this way, O oh God most high, most good, most powerful, most tender-hearted and most just, most remote and most present, most beautiful and most vigorous, stable and ungraspable, unchanging yet changing all things, never new yet never old, renewing all things. And what have we said, my God, my life, my holy delight, or what can anyone say when he speaks of thee. Let's pray. Father, we haven't even begun to read your word. And we know ourselves to be at the end of our ropes in understanding you and and perceiving you in your greatness and your glory and splendor and awe. So we pray, Father, that your spirit will come and give us even just a modicum of understanding to open our hearts and our eyes to the great things that your word has to say. And Father, recreate us according to your truth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah 40, beginning at verse 9. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. 
Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. They are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel nor all its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither. And the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom, then, will you compare me? That I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. This passage was written, as many of you already know, to God's people in their captivity in Babylon. 
Though he was writing long before the Babylonians even rose to power, Isaiah was given by God to see the people of Judah dragged forcibly from their homes, even from the city of Jerusalem, off to a foreign land. There they would despair of life and even of God. In their captivity, they would wonder to themselves whether God even existed let alone cared for them. Doubts would fill their minds as their captors demanded from them songs and mirth from their saddened hearts. Where is God? They had. Do you know they were thinking it to themselves? Does he care? Does he control the Babylonians? They could remember their father's experience with the Assyrians. Maybe that was just a lucky shot when God wiped out 185,000 Assyrians in one night. Maybe he doesn't have control over the Babylonians, after all. They were feeling that if God even existed, surely he's forgotten about them. Or is possibly, maybe even unable to help them. Maybe he couldn't even hear them. Of course, our spiritual ancestors in captivity in Babylon were not the first nor certainly have they been the last to think just those sort of things. Christians, real Christians, devoted, earnest Christians have faced and continue to face the very same questions. How many times I have heard Christians wonder aloud, and you have too, things like, I feel like God has just forgotten me. Like he's just abandoned me. I wonder if he even really cares. The answer Isaiah gives is for them to grow up, to have their greater vision given to them, so to speak. They, they needed, we need to have the blinders removed from our eyes so that we can see, to, so to speak, the unseen and realize what we cannot fully realize and to grasp what cannot really be fully grasped. The immensity, the power, the greatness, the majesty, the glory, the love of God. Your God. J.B. Phillips wrote a popular book during the last century entitled, With This Simple Assertion, Your God is Too Small. That was Judah's problem. Not that God was objectively too small. Of course he was not. He was still the great and awesome God to whom Solomon rather prayed at the dedication of the temple generations earlier, asking and then answering his own question in prayer, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven in the highest heaven cannot contain you, much less this house that I've built. The problem was never, is never, that God objectively is too small. The problem is subjective, you see. The deficiency is not his, it's ours. Our God is too small, that is to say, our view of God is far too small. We look at God and Far too often, we look as through the binoculars, 
backwards. Have you ever tried that? You look through binoculars backwards and everything looks small and, and distant and insignificant. And looking at God that way, we have in our, our entire world and life view terribly skewed. Isaiah offers them and offers us the corrective. He takes the binoculars, as it were, and he, he turns them right way around. Or better yet, we might say, he takes them away altogether. And here he gives us to see God through God's eyes. And then he says, Now, behold your God. And looking from that perspective, we behold God, the, the creator God, God, the majestic God, God, the sustainer God. Congregation, behold your God. First, behold your God, the creator God. Verse 28. Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. And that's why Isaiah can ask with that rhetorical question back in verse 12, this. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? And to ask the question, of course, is to, to answer it. God made the heavens. God made the earth. God measured the oceans, vast as they are. The way some of you ladies have learned to measure a teaspoon of salt in the palm of your hand. Or look at the vast expanse of the stars sometime. Every Christian should do this from time to time should step out of his house or hers late at night when all is dark and take some time just to gaze on the stars. Just look at them. Who put them there? Go out into the country, way out into the country in the dark sometime, out in the boondocks, you know, out where the youngs live. And look at the stars and consider them. Look from one point of the horizon to the other point. What distance must you be witnessing with your own eyes? Look tonight and you will see in the sky, you will see light that has been traveling for thousands of years for the very second that it would pass through your eye and hit the retina and be sent in communication to your brain on the optic nerve. Yet that span of light years, not just years now, light years, is measured like the span God's thumb to his little finger. It is figurative language, yes, I acknowledge that. 
but purposeful. God has measured and set the seas. He set the stars, the dust in a container of the whole earth. The mountains and hills personally weighed them, them out, put them in their places exactly where they are today. And he did this alone, all alone. According to his own divine genius, God did this. The Babylonians had in their religion a place for a creator God too. His name was Marduk, or Marduk. But according to the Babylonian tradition, he had to consult with Ea, the all-wise, before creating. It was a creation, we might say, creation by committee. Not God. He, he himself, by his own wisdom and power, consulting no one outside of the Holy Trinity, created all things and put them in their place by the word of his power. Creation by fiat. He spoke it into being. Christians, behold your creator God. Second, behold your God, the majestic God, which is just another way of saying the great God. He is, in a word, immense. Verse 15, behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are all its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. A couple of days ago, I had to move a couple of gallons of water. So I went to the spigot with my couple of bottles. I needed as much as I could possibly squeeze into those bottles. But as I was walking briskly along with them, the water was sloshing about and a few drops came out and ran down the side of the gallon jug and, and fell onto the ground. Now, what did I do? Did I freeze in place and turn around and back to the spigot and get the couple drips of water in there again and fill them back up? Well, of course not. What is a drop or two drops or 10 or, or 20 for that matter? Now put it in terms of this verse. What is Assyria or Babylonia or Persia or Greece or Rome? What is North Korea or Iraq or Iran? What is Russia or Ukraine or Uganda or Colombia or Australia? What is Mexico? What is the United States of America to God? Less than nothing. Less than nothing. Put them all together and combine, they're not even a drop in the bucket. He turns his eyes in verse 16 to one nation in particular, known for its mighty forests. It was the world's supplier of timber in its day. Isaiah says, Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. Cut down every tree in the vast forests of Lebanon. Level the whole forest. Make a huge pile for a burnt offering, then slay every animal from that woods and heap the carcasses to the sky on top of that pile and light it on fire 
and it is not enough. Christian, your God is majestic. He is great. He is immense. That doctrine has been lost on us. It really has. I'm so glad we heard about that in prayer, even this morning, just a few minutes ago. He is an awesome God. So much stress today is laid on God being a personal God. And he is, most certainly. But too much emphasis on that pole has left the other in eclipse in our day. The result of this loss, laments J.I. Packer, is feeble faith and flabby worship. And the corrective must be for you, Christian, and for me to behold your great and awesome God. Third, behold your God, the sustaining God. Now, the Babylonians, where Judah was held captive, they worshipped heavenly bodies, the stars, which they believed controlled the destinies of men. It's not a little ironic, then, is it, that Isaiah should say that those stars, God controls them. Verse 26, he brings out their host by number, calls them all by name, and by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Not one. Our solar system, brothers and sisters, I read this this week, quote, our solar system is inside the galaxy called the Milky Way. And this galaxy we live in is shaped like a spiral, a gigantic pinwheel spinning in the open expanse of space. With our solar system rotating around the center. We lie about two-thirds of the way out from the center of the galaxy in what might be considered the boondocks. The Milky Way is 104,000 light years across, containing over 100 billion stars. To count the stars in our galaxy alone, one by one would take you 3,000 years years. And according to the latest probings of the Hubble Space Telescope, there are hundreds of billions of galaxies in God's universe. I don't say that to impress you with uh, the greatness of the universe, but with the greatness of the God who sustains that entire universe every millisecond of every second of every minute of every hour of every day of every week of every month of every year of every century of every millennia and God knows every single one of those planets and stars 
by name. And because of that, he doesn't lose track of a single one. When one of them just explodes, <laughs> he doesn't lose track of it. In fact, he was in charge of it. Not a single star of those billions upon billions of stars escapes his constant view or his direct care. Do you really think then, Christian, can you think for one moment that he's forgotten you who are so more important and valuable to him than they? Behold your sustaining God. Now we have said nothing about the wisdom of God, the sovereignty of God, the exclusivity of God, the self-sufficiency of God, the transcendence of God, the imminence of God, the omnipresence, omnipotence, and omniscience of God. All of them are here. Back in uh, seminary days, we would read from time to time about the importance of the preacher uh, from week to week, exhausting the text before him in his sermon. In other words, he needed to speak to every part of the, of the text for the sake of the congregation. Well, with apologies to the experts, there is no way that we can exhaust this passage. If I preached on nothing else but Isaiah 40 for the rest of my life, dear flock, we wouldn't come close to exhausting this text. But before we leave off, the original preacher of this text, Isaiah, acting as God's mouthpiece, now has some applications to make. And they actually take the form of, of what we might consider gentle rebukes in a series of three rhetorical questions. First this, verse 25. To whom will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. The fact is we far too often do we not entertain thoughts of God that are simply not proper. Your thoughts of God are too human, Martin Luther once chided Erasmus. It reminds me of the rebuke God issues through the psalmist. You thought I was one like yourself. This is where our minds and our thoughts of God so often go awry. We think of God in terms of ourselves rather than in terms of his greatness and of his power and of his holiness and of his strength and wisdom and justice and goodness and truth. We think of him as if he were limited, like we are. You must, Christians, learn to think of God on his terms, the terms by which he has revealed himself to you, so that you may never have it said of you accurately that your God is too small. Second, verse 27, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God? Over the years, I've, I've tried very hard to help people who've come to thoughts of divine abandonment. And, and they think that God has left them, and I suppose because of my own sense a vulnerability to those same sort of thoughts and a desire hopefully never to break the bruised reed. I've tried very hard over the years to be very gentle with people who come to me 
with that sense of divine abandonment. But there comes a time when a rebuke is in order too. God does not forget about his children. He is at pains in the Bible over and over and over again to impress upon our minds and our hearts his constancy toward us. The good shepherd who pays attention to his every sheep and leaves the 99 to chase down the one that's lost. The hands of God the Son and the hands of God the Father that are on the hands of the Son that grip you and from which no one can snatch you. If God has gone to such great lengths to tell you in a thousand different ways and you still refuse to believe them, and what you need is to repent. You need to repent of your unbelief. You are calling God into question. One very pastoral theologian says that if you have been resigning yourself to the thought that God has left you high and dry, seek grace to be ashamed of yourself. Such unbelieving pessimism deeply dishonors our great God and Savior. Third, verse 28. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. I want the Lord willing to come back to that idea next Lord's Day, but for now let's just say that the answer to that question must be for all of you in the hearing of my voice right now, a humble yes, you have known and you have heard that the Lord is the everlasting God and the creator of the ends of the earth. If only just this moment it has been revealed to you in the hearing of my voice, now you know. The Lord is the great God who never faints and never grows weary. He hasn't a need of an afternoon nap. And he isn't a doting old man as he's so often portrayed to be these days. He is robust. He is all-powerful. He knows all things, and in particular, he knows you. And while billions of stars are in his care, he's got the hairs on your head numbered. And he knows exactly how many there are and how many you left in the hairbrush this morning. He knows it all because he is all-powerful. He can bring about what he knows you need right now. Don't give yourself, dear flock, to the idolatry, and that's exactly what it is. That's what false thoughts about God truly are, idolatry. I say don't give yourself to thinking too little of God. Indeed, you will never, ever fail by thinking thoughts too great of Him. Your God may be at times too small, but he will never be too great to your minds and to your heart's view. Behold, 
your God.